You're listening to a podcast from the BMJ. Welcome to the BMJ podcast. This week I'll be talking to two researchers about sex life expectancy and what a new measure of it could mean to patients and to public health. I, I believe that public health should pay more attention uh, to these indicators of sexually FT life expectancy and to sexuality in general because this area is not well, I think it does not uh, have much attention. Also this week, Sosha Kmitovic talks to two doctors here on a flying visit from Zimbabwe. She'll find out about the state of the healthcare system in the country and how things have improved since 2008. If there was a magic wand to make it possible for all of them to come back to Zimbabwe, I think that would be the greatest thing that can ever happen to Zimbabwe. But before all that, I'm joined by David Payne, who's here with this week's news. Hi, David. Hello, Duncan. So, what have you got for us this week? Um, well, I suppose the first thing I ought to mention, um, we're all a little bit jaded this week because we had our BMJ Group Awards, um, and I know you were there too. So, they took place a couple of nights ago in London, and uh, a good time was had by all. The story about the awards has just gone live on bmj.com. It's written by Nigel Hawkes, and it talks about all the award winners, including our Lifetime Achievement Award, uh, Marlene Temmerman um, from Belgium, who... Um, has done a lot of work in the obstetrics and gynaecology field in Kenya. Did you enjoy it? I did, yes. Uh, I particularly enjoyed Marlene's dancing at the end of the year. Oh, yes. I wasn't <laughs> there for that, so I should have staged, didn't I? <laughs> so what have we got news-wise this week? Yes, well, for some reason, I've seemed to be um, focusing on smoking this week, Duncan. The first thing that caught my eye today was an article um, by Wendy Moore um, called Royal Insights on Smoking. And when I saw that headline, I, for some reason, I assumed it was going to be about Princess Margaret or King George VI. But um, it was actually about um, King James I of England, King James VI of Scotland, I think that's correct. You know, he apparently um, hated the newly discovered tobacco and and ranted about it. Wendy makes the point that he really should have saved his breath because medical professionals would blithely advocate smoking for health for the next 350 years. That's right, until Richard Dahl, who published his uh, articles on that in the BMJ. Absolutely, and for whom we have a nice video that you can find on bmj.com. So that sort of caught my eye first off. Yes. Staying with the smoking theme, I then caught um, a story that um, we've covered from Holland, which is a loophole in the law. When the smoking ban came in there a couple of years ago, cafe owners that didn't employ anybody thought that the law didn't apply to them and um, blithely continued allowing their customers to smoke. And I think indeed it went up in cafes in 2009. But that loophole has now been tightened. So it looks as if Dutch cafe owners will probably have to comply. Um, I think it will go to the appeal court, but it's an interesting development uh, Yes, they were fighting against it quite vociferously. So. Yes, yeah. I remember visiting Holland just before the law changed. The smoking ban applied over here then, and I was really shocked, actually, about how smoky the bars were. It made me uh, realise how uh, we'd suffered for years. So what's the next one, then? Well, the third one I've got is kind of to do with smoking, but um, with a more sombre theme, really. It's actually to do with charcoal and uh, suicide prevention. And um, this story caught my eye because, unbeknown to me, using charcoal to kill oneself is common in, um, in parts of Asia. And this is a story from Hong Kong, actually. It was a study show that um, restricting access to barbecue charcoal can be helpful in lowering the number of suicides. Um, Obviously, it's been welcomed by experts in suicide prevention. So what was the study actually looking for? Basically, it it was done in conjunction with Hong Kong's two supermarket chains, and it showed that in one district, the rate of suicides by charcoal burning um, halved during the 12 months when barbecue charcoal was available only from a locked container, which was obtained on request, which was unlocked, sorry, on request by a member of staff. Um, I just didn't realise that that was a method for, for suicide. Um, it's in, apparently it happens by you burn charcoal in a sealed room. Yes. OK, well, thanks for that, David. You can read all those stories and more online on bmj.com. 
I'm now joined on the phone by Stacey Lindau, who's a gynaecologist, and Natalia Garilova, who's a gerontologist, both from the University of Chicago. They've been looking into sexual health in old people and have come up with a new sex life expectancy. The research looked at a nationally representative sample of patients in the US, and they looked at two studies to investigate a link between health and continuing sex life. From that, they've been able to calculate a new measure of sex life expectancy. So, for a start, Dr. Garilova, could you tell us a bit about this sexually active life expectancy and how it came about? I got idea from this measure of healthy life expectancy because it is able to measure different aspects of health, but nobody ever measured uh, in this way uh, sexual health. And so it is measured in the same way as any other measure of healthy life expectancy, like active life expectancy or any other measure. So it measures the average number of years spent in a particular state, and in our case it is state of sexual activity. So is that just looking at specifically any sexual activity, or is it taking in a quality measure? At this point it is looking using um, just a, any sexual activity, Uh, In other words, it is projecting the number of years one can expect at any given age of um, remaining sexually active life. Okay. Is there an average sexual life expectancy for, for men and women in your population? We found in these two different populations um, that at age 55, the uh, sexually active life expectancy was 10.6 years for women and about 14.9 to 15.3 years for men. So at age 55, men can expect more years of sexually active life remaining than women. Using the MIDAS data set, which had younger people Mm -hmm. included, we found that at age 30, sexually active life expectancy was almost 35 years for men and just about 31 years for women. So a big question is going to be, what is the advent of new treatments for sexual dysfunction, drugs like Viagra? Uh, What effect have they had on sex life expectancy? You know, one of the major influences on uh, sexual life for older adults in Europe and in the U.S. has been the availability of erectile dysfunction drugs. Mm -hmm. These drugs um, were introduced to both the European and U.S. markets and in other uh, places around the world in the late 1990s and have just been incredibly successful in terms of their ability to treat erectile dysfunction on the one hand and in terms of their uh, profitability, as we all know. Yes. I think there's there's no question that the availability of erectile dysfunction drugs have had an impact on male sexual life, uh, particularly for older males, and there are some clues to support that in, in our findings. The impact for women is, I think, harder. We don't fully understand what the impact has been for women. Again, maybe some suggestion in our findings, um, but but needs more work to understand. One thing you mentioned earlier was the disparity between sex life expectancy for men and for women. Is there anything that can explain that? Yes, and Natalia and I spoke, uh, we, we really talked a lot about this in terms of understanding the differences. And, you know, I think she makes a very good observation. I'm a gynecologist, so I focus on women. And, and perhaps as a gerontologist, she thinks a little bit more broadly. But in order for men to be sexually active, um, especially with, you know, intercourse, erectile function is really critical. 
So we see a, a stronger association between health, overall health, and sexual function and sexually active life expectancy for men than mm-hmm. we do for women. Yeah. And this may be that because the, the most common illnesses and the most common medications used to treat those illnesses can really interfere with the ability of a man to have an erection. And if he can't have an erection, that really may um, kind of bring his, his sexually active life to a close. Women, on the other hand, we see less of a connection between overall health and uh, sexual activity as well as we do between overall health and sexually active life expectancy. And this, you know, we can only speculate as to why this is, but unlike men, women can uh, engage in sexual intercourse um, even if they're having sexual problems and dysfunction. And in fact, we see a great deal of evidence that among sexually active women who are older, uh, sexual problems are highly prevalent. Now, how important is a good quality sex life to a good quality of life overall? Well, that's an excellent question that interests us, although not a question answered with the data in this particular study. There are other studies that have shown for both men and women a strong connection between quality sexual life and quality of life more generally. It's interesting that the widely used measures for research on quality of life, just as is the case with widely used measures for research on life expectancy, do not typically take sexual life into account. So just going back to your term of sexually active life expectancy, are there any clinical implications for it? I think at the clinical level, it's possible that if individuals understood their sexually active life expectancy and how that might differ if they chose not to quit smoking or if they chose not to adhere to uh, their diabetes regimens, or other sorts of behaviors, it could motivate people. Absolutely. So are you thinking there could be campaigns as well to to try and get people to fight heart disease or smoking or whatever it happens to be? Campaigns over here have said things like, every cigarette takes 11 minutes off your life. Right. But if you could relate that to um, you know, sexual function, every cigarette costs yeah. one third of an orgasm or something, that would be an effective way of hammering home that message? I think it could be an effective way, and you put it very nicely. <laughs> what, we, what Dr. Gavrilov and I need to figure out uh, you know, how to do is how to make this measure accessible to the public and to individuals to, uh, you know, to make use of it in their day-to-day lives. I, I believe that public health should pay more attention uh, to these indicators of sexually active life expectancy and to sexuality in general, because this area is not well, I think it does not uh, have much attention yet, but it, I believe that now some, actually, public opinion is changing, and there are no, now more publications on, this, publications on this topic, so I believe there should be more attention to this topic in general, I believe. Professor Lindau, Dr. Garlova, thanks for joining us. And you can read that research paper online for free on bmj.com. Now, earlier in the week, Zosia Kmitovich, one of the BMJ's news reporters, talked to two visiting physicians from Zimbabwe about what's going on with the health system in their country. 
Well, I'd like to welcome two doctors from Zimbabwe to the BMJ today. I've got Douglas Gwetizzo with me and Dr. Rutendo Bonde, who are from Harare, and they're on a visit to the UK at the moment. They both belong to the Zimbabwe Association of Doctors for Human Rights. That's right. And I'd like to ask Dr. Gwetizzo first how the organization was set up. Well, the Zimbabwe Association of Doctors for Human Rights uh, came into being in uh, 2002 uh, at the peak of uh, uh, you know, organized violence and torture which was taking place in the country. And uh, a few doctors who were treating patients uh, in Zimbabwe felt that uh, there was need to do more than just treating the patients. So we decided to come together and form an association uh, which uh, took on uh, advocacy work against uh, uh, human rights abuses that were taking place in the country. Okay. And uh, we have since uh, widened our um, activities uh, to include uh, education, and we've also taken on uh, activities in, uh, in prisons, uh, maternal and child health, and uh, you know, other campaigns you know, on issues like HIV and AIDS. And uh, my colleague, uh, Dr. Rutendo Bonde, is actually involved uh, more and more in, the, you know, in that area. Right. I'm sure our listeners will be interested to hear about your work on torture, because how do you tackle that? Most of our members are working in institutions that uh, uh, victims of organized violence and torture uh, get assistance. And, and when they treat the patients, uh, they, they do a lot of documentation, which is then uh, transmitted to the, to the offices of, of the association. And, and that information is uh, put together in documents that we use for advocacy work. We publish uh, newsletters. We issue articles in the papers. We also, you know, you know get interviews with uh, you know interested uh, tv and radio stations uh, all in an effort to try and uh, make people aware that uh, human rights abuses are not acceptable right and do you put yourselves at risk in that kind of work it is possible uh, but uh, i think our conscience uh, you know keeps us going right okay and if i could ask dr bonde about the situation at the moment in zimbabwe in terms of the numbers of doctors there and how you're managing to work. We have a medical school in Zimbabwe, which has been training over the past 10 years, an average of 150 to 200 doctors every year. But currently on our register, we have around um, 1,000 doctors. Working in the country. working, Working in the country. And this goes to show maybe the extent of the brain drain. Uh, A vast proportion of the doctors have left into neighboring countries and also further abroad because basically the working conditions and the remuneration was making it difficult for professionals, not only medical professionals, but I think professionals across the board to stay in the country. And can you tell us a bit about the hospitals? I understand the government-run hospitals closed as well for some time. Is that right? Yes. During the same period, um, November 2008 to March 2009, there had been perennially demonstrations by the, the health professionals really about not only the, the salaries but also the working conditions as the availability of drugs and, and equipment was, was really steadily declining and the, the pressure that health professionals were facing to always 
improvise medication, improvise um, surgical procedures, improvise anesthetics. Generally, there was a time when the health profession said we've had enough. And there was a, a demonstration which was done and and also a decision made that, you know, we can't go on. At that point, you know, coupled with the deteriorating infrastructure, the hospitals just were not delivering the services. And that's the time when the hospitals, the major hospitals closed. And in the districts and the provincial hospitals, they reduced the spectrum of services. They were not doing elective procedures. They were not running out patients and just doing emergency and maternity only during that period. And what is the situation like now? Have the hospitals reopened? Yes, the hospitals have reopened. And um, this is because there's a, a more, more stakeholders and more partners have really rallied around the Ministry of Health to make sure that the service delivery is, is coming back to life. And what would you like to happen in the next few months if you had a wish list? What would be at the top of your list for Zimbabwe? Okay. Right. The list is long, but uh, but I'll, I'll give it a go. I think top of the list would be uh, the human resources aspect of uh, you know, the health delivery system. There are thousands of Zimbabwean health workers that are outside the country. And, and if there was a magic wand to make it possible for all of them to come back to Zimbabwe, I think that would be the greatest thing that can ever happen to Zimbabwe. Uh, and it's not just a question of bringing them back, but uh, one needs to address those issues that made them run away from Zimbabwe. And if those could be corrected, I'm sure you don't even need to invite anybody. They'll simply come back home. Uh, the second one would be to make sure that uh, the institutions... We don't need to build new hospitals for Zimbabwe. I think people must understand that there's no need, there's absolutely no need to build new hospitals. The structures are there. What is needed is to make them work again, to just get you know the equipment going, the plumbing system going, those things that make a hospital run that need to be put in place. Uh, so that will be the second wish list. The third wish list is that uh, if, if the political situation in the country could be solved once and for all so that at least we can make progress for Zimbabwe. I think, I think those three... Uh, for me, would be you know important. Yeah. Dr. Bondage, would you add anything to that list? Well, I would add um, accountability in terms of health financing, and um, I would love for health professionals to be more engaged. Yeah. We kind of practice with our heads in the sand for a number of reasons, maybe personal safety or not enough personal conviction, and yeah. For me, that would be a big thing. If all those things are being done, but also there is a, a network uh, of accountability and a legal framework to protect whatever we're doing in the area of accountability, that would be a plus. Well, good luck. It's been a pleasure to meet you both today. Thanks for coming in. Thank you very much. And you can read more about that in Sosha's news story, which appears online on bmj.com. That's all for this week. Next week we'll be finding out about some bed use in children and examining what the new private members bill going through the UK Parliament today could mean for skin cancer rates in the future. Join us then. For more information about this programme and other BMJ Group podcasts, please visit bmj.com.